There are times when we seek the Spirit, and there are times when the Spirit seeks us. In the book Born to Run, the Olympic champion runner Herb Elliott says, I came to realize that spirit, as much or more than physical conditioning, had to be shored up before race. Sometimes we seek a power greater than our own, that mysterious something more that is the difference between simply running the race well and running phenomenally like we have never run before in our lives. Millions of folks around the world now download these little meditation or mindfulness apps on their phones. Folks are seeking peace and calm and awareness and focus. It's a billion-dollar business, and even many corporations are now teaching meditation and mindfulness classes. I got a recent notice on the Next Door Neighbor group that a group of my neighbors is forming a meditation group. It seems that people from a variety of faith traditions and even folks from no faith tradition at all are seeking the support and the guidance of something called spirit. In a recent book, Rob Bell cites a study done by neurobiologists in Italy. When a monkey ate a peanut, a certain motor neuron in the monkey's brain would light up. And then, kind of by accidental, the researchers realized that when the researcher would begin to eat a peanut and the monkey was watching the researcher, the monkey's motor neurons also lit up. An actual physiological response just from watching. You don't have to be religious then to pay attention to the ways that we human beings are connected to one another and connected by some mysterious source that is both within us and beyond us. And sometimes we call this spirit. But what exactly do we mean by spirit? We live in a day when spirituality is rapidly rising in popularity. Some folks are really into spirituality, even if they don't believe in God, even if they don't profess Jesus as Lord. What is this spirituality, and how is it that it has captured the attention of our modern culture? I love what the Catholic priest and author Ron Rollheiser says about spirituality. He says, spirituality is what we do with the fire inside of us. It suggests that all of us have a spirituality because all of us have some kind of fire inside of us, a spirit, something unique that makes you, you, that is more than your skin and your bones and your muscles and your blood vessels, something of your unique spirit. Even the Bible does not exactly agree on what spirit is. The word spirit appears 671 times in scripture if you read from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes the word in our English Bible is breath or wind or spirit, but all of them come from the same root word. In Hebrew, it's ruach, and in Greek, naumo. The meaning varies depending on the story we're reading, the context. Sometimes in scripture, spirit is like a warm blanket, like a gentle lullaby, like a tender embrace. For example, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus explains to his friends that he will soon depart and go to live with the Father, 
Jesus says, I will leave you an advocate, a presence with you. Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. They were seeking some kind of spirit or presence, some way to know that they were still connected to God even once Jesus was absent. But sometimes it's the other way around. The spirit seems to seek us. We're simply minding our own business and the spirit shows up, invades us, seeks us out, finds us, rattles something loose within us. No one was expecting it. It just bubbled up. Spirit can find us and move in even when it's uninvited. And that's how it happened in the book of Acts. The disciples are gathered there in Jerusalem for a religious festival, one that they gathered for every year, 50 days after Passover, for the Pentecost. They're in an upper room, and they're sorting out those inevitable next steps that all of us go through after the loss of a loved one. Their Jesus is gone. Oh, yes, yes, he's been raised from the dead, but he's gone. And so they are very much alone. And suddenly, without warning, a rush of violent wind fills the entire house. Who opened the door? Why are the papers blowing? The curtains are blowing. Shut the door. But even if they were to shut the door, the wind would continue to blow. It blows through them, that wind. Rest upon each of them, and it gives them the power and the ability to do what none of them thought was possible, to speak and be heard by those from other regions and religions who spoke other languages. But on this day, in this moment, they all understood. These very different people come together and form one holy community, and this is called the birth of the church. Something no one had planned, wasn't expected. After all, think about it. These are the very disciples who have forsaken Jesus as he trudged to the cross. These are the very ones who doubted when they heard that Jesus was risen from the dead. Peter, the one who had denied Jesus, who had said, I didn't know him, I didn't know him, now stands up in this moment and delivers the most compelling sermon about Jesus that thousands began to join in this movement called the church. The Spirit of God hovered over the water at creation and formed the world. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove on the day of Jesus' baptism. And now this very Spirit of God gives birth to a new reality called the church. And when they get up from that table, they go out to heal the sick, to care for the widows and the orphans, to preach peace where there is no peace. They go out to share the good news of Jesus with all of the known world. The church, well, it begins to spread like fire. Now, speaking of fire, there's another image in this text. It's always struck me as a bit odd. Wind blowing, I get, we've all felt the wind blowing, we've seen it. But this other image that describes what happened at that Pentecost day, tongues of fire, I don't get that. Acts says, divided tongues as a fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. 
Recently, I read an article by Jana Childers that offered an explanation I had never heard. She said that she once listened to a New Testament scholar named Herman Weijen describe how in the first century, there were these coins of currency that had the image of Emperor Caesar on the front, the Roman emperor's face, and it said underneath his face, son of God. And above Caesar's head, there were divided tongues of fire. And so this coin would have been well known in the first century, a constant reminder that divine power in their world rested upon the government. But by placing the tongues of fire <coughs> above those frightened disciples in an upper room, Acts makes the bold claim that the divine power belongs not to the government, but to this little community, this ragtag group of followers of Jesus. The divine power that rested in Jesus now rests on them. The movement of God now rises up through them. Does it, does it still? Does that God still move in our lives? Does the Spirit give us ability beyond our words as it did to those early Christians? On my calendar each morning, if you were to peek, you would see every morning, eight to 10, prayer, prayer and study. Oh, I have a little routine. You probably have one too. I sit in the antique wooden chair with the turquoise velvet cushion in my office. I light a candle. I set a timer for 12 minutes, and I sit there in silence waiting for the Spirit to speak. Sometimes it doesn't, and it's frustrating. And sometimes I wiggle in the chair, and I get up, and I walk around the room, and sometimes I come into the office too late, and I think, ah, oh, there's no time for prayer. To what do we attribute this? Is it simply that I'm distractible? Or is it that we are sometimes unsure if God's Spirit still breathes in our world through us? I remember back in 2010 when we realized that the exterior facade of Country Club Christian Church was beginning to crumble. The tower to the right of the front door was literally held up by this wire that was wrapped in a green garden hose. It wasn't pretty. The 90-year-old mortar that held these beautiful stones together had frozen and thawed too many times, letting water seep in, and the structure was at risk. We got a bid. Let's fix it. Three million dollars, they said. And we decided, well, we need some stuff on the inside, too, so we would spend $2 million on the inside, a $5 million total project. But then we hired consultants, and we said, help us raise the money, and they said, okay, good. We've checked it out, and here's what you can raise, $3 million. Okay, we said, no interior projects, just fix the outside, and we began to raise the $3 million, and then the engineers who were working on the exterior of the building came in with a very bad look on their faces. And they said, whoa, the exterior is in way worse shape than we thought. It's gonna cost five million. 
And we went, five million? We can't raise five million. What should we do? Should we borrow it? What should we do? We can't stop. What should we do? You know what we did? We raised five million dollars. And so what would you call that? Would you call it really good fundraising? Or would you call it the Holy Spirit? This past week, the world remembered D-Day on the beaches of Normandy, brave souls who gave their lives for a purpose so much larger than any single one of us. As we remembered D-Day, I was reminded of the life of a very famous theologian, perhaps the world's most famous theologian of recent times, a man named Jürgen Moltmann from Germany. Professors, and students, and teachers all around the globe would claim Moltmann as someone who is pivotal in their thinking about God's hope. They would say it was Moltmann's writings that gave me hope that changed my life. But the funny thing is, Jürgen Moltmann did not grow up as a Christian. He was born in Germany in a secular family, and he knew nothing of the faith. As a teenage boy, he was conscripted into Hitler's army. He watched his dear friend perish sitting inches away from him when a bomb was dropped and Moltmann walked away unscathed. When the war ended, Jürgen Moltmann had no hope, no direction in his life. He was sent to a prisoner of war camp, and there the chaplain, who was passing out cigarettes and Bibles, gave Moltmann a Bible. He said, I really would have preferred the cigarettes, but he got the Bible, and he began to read it, and he read these passages about the profound suffering that Jesus had been through, even Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he read about the suffering of Jesus, he began to understand and sense that God might be in the midst of his suffering. And then they sent Moltmann to an international Christian camp where people who had fought on both sides of the battle lines came together, enemies, now at table, eating and drinking together, singing and worshiping together, and Moltmann, still wearing his German uniform, the only clothes he had, was absolutely astounded by how he was treated with dignity and respect by the former enemy. There, at that Christian camp, he learned about the suffering that had happened during the war from other people's perspective. He learned about the atrocities of the concentration camps and Moltmann was devastated. He was told that the Spirit of Christ has the power to build bridges between enemies and that new life is possible. And Moltmann said that for the first time, he felt like he could finally breathe again. And he was beginning to see that yes, he was seeking God, but only because God had first sought him. How do you explain that kind of dramatic transformation in a human life? Would you attribute it to human kindness or to the spirit of God? 
Last week, we talked about the meaning of the word God, and next week, we will talk about the meaning of the word Jesus, and today, we are talking about spirit, but really, they're all the same thing. Spirit is simply the word that we use to describe the movement of the holy within real human lives, within each of us, and among all of us. Do you suppose that that crazy wind and fire thing that happened at Pentecost 2,000 years ago still happens now? Does it move through and empower us? Would we open our own lives up to the movement of God's Spirit? Christy Farber of Washington State shared a story that she heard on the podcast Invisibilia, which aired on NPR in July of 2016. There was a dinner party. It took place in the backyard of some friends in Washington, D.C. It was a beautiful dinner party. One of the guests called it a, a magical evening. They had lovely French wine, delicious food. It was the kind of dinner party that as it began to wind down, no one would leave because they just wanted to linger there in one another's presence. And it was at that moment that Michael looked up and noticed the long barrel of a gun pointed right near his wife's face. A man in designer sweats had entered into the backyard uninvited and was demanding money. Angrily, he kept saying, give me your money, but this was a backyard party and who carries cash anyway? And they began to panic, realizing that they had no money and this was likely to end badly. One person spoke up and tried to dissuade the gunman. Hey, what would your mother think of you right now? He said, hey, I don't have a mother. Give me money now. Then Christina, one of the other dinner guests, tried a different tack. She said, you know, we're celebrating here tonight. Would you like a glass of wine? All of a sudden, the whole countenance on the man's face changed. It was like a light switch. He took a sip of wine and he said, hmm, this is really good wine. And then they served him some cheese and he had to place the gun in his pocket so he could hold both the wine and the cheese and all the other guests stood there frozen until the gunman finally said, I think I've come to the wrong house. And the guests all said, well, yeah, that happens. We understand. And then the guy said, can I get a hug? And Michael's wife, the one who had had the gun pointed towards her face, she walked over to him and she gave him a hug and they all hugged and he apologized and he left. And a little later that evening after they'd cleaned up and calmed down, they left and they saw that the wine glass they had given him was tucked neatly by the sidewalk next to the alleyway where he had come in. It wasn't broken, it wasn't thrown, it was gently returned. How can we explain that? How can we explain that movement from violence and fear to tenderness and peace? 